The Bible tells the story of Esau, who was a skillful hunter, loved being outdoors, and was wild at heart. One day Esau was returning from a hunting trip in which he caught nothing, and he was absolutely famished, starving. He comes into the house and his brother Jacob is cooking a stew, a soup. And the smell hits Esau's nose and he goes half crazy. He begs Jacob, give me a bowl of that soup, I'm famished. Jacob says, sell me your inheritance and I'll give you the soup. See what Jacob is saying is, is Esau is the oldest child and in that culture there was a birthright. There was a right that goes with the oldest child, which meant, to put it in modern day terms, if Jacob was due to inherit, say, $2 million when his father Isaac died, Esau gets a double portion as the oldest child. He's set to inherit $4 million. What Jacob is essentially saying is, yeah, I'll give you a bowl of soup. I'll sell it to you for the rights to the additional $2 million. You sell me your firstborn rights and I'll give you the bowl of soup. Now, we don't know what Esau was thinking at that moment. Perhaps he was thinking, well, $2 million or whatever it was going to be, that's a long way off and I'm hungry now. Maybe he was thinking, I won't need it when I get to the point when Isaac finally dies. I'll have my own money and I won't need more of the inheritance. Perhaps he thinks, well, I'm... Isaac's favorite, which was true, my dad's going to give it all to me anyway. It doesn't matter what I say at this situation. Perhaps he wasn't thinking anything at all. Maybe he was letting his stomach do his thinking for him. But one thing we know for sure he wasn't thinking at that moment. He wasn't thinking about the God who had sworn to his father Isaac to bless him and that, that God who had sworn to bless Isaac is extravagantly generous. And that whatever form that inheritance was going to take, it was going to be more lavish and more wonderful than anything Esau could have imagined at that time. But he certainly wasn't thinking that. Whatever was going through his head, he agrees to the deal. And he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. How foolish. How foolish to trade something so valuable, $2 million or whatever it would be, for something so worthless. It's a sad story. But how about this one? A young Christian girl in her late teenage years has been walking faithfully with the Lord. He's shown up and been with her in powerful ways through her school years, protecting her, loving her, helping her with loneliness and other things that she's gone through. He's dealt with her in, in kind ways, and she, in return, has tried to be obedient and to be faithful, wanting to serve him and please him. And one day along comes a boy. And that boy is the center of her attention. And she effectively says to the boy, give me affection. And the boy effectively says to her, give me your purity. What a cost. Her purity, 
the opportunity for a pure marriage bed in the future, her faithful obedience to the Lord, to sell that for a little bit of affection in the present time? Or what about this? A husband in a great marriage with a wife who's clearly a gift from the Lord tempted to sell that marriage, that blessing, a future of being able to have been faithful, all for a fling in the here and now. Or what about this? A woman whose sister has deeply wronged her chooses to trade all other relationships in her life so that she can harbor bitterness in her heart toward her sister. It sabotages everything else in her life, but she gets to hold on to that wound. How about this? A man who's been faithful in ministry for many years, whom God has anointed and put into a position of honor, who God has used to do mighty things, who's seen jaw-dropping kinds of stuff. One day, after years and years of faithfully serving the Lord, he grows tired of the constant grumbling and complaining of the people he's been asked to minister to. He chooses to lose his temper, to finally vent his frustrations that have been building for such a long time, and he gives way to this desire to finally just let them have it. And in the middle of that, he disgraces and dishonors God. And it costs him the opportunity to lead those same people into the future that he'd been working so hard to get them to. All of these are tragic stories. They're tragic stories because in each one of them, someone is selling something so valuable, so precious, whether in the present or the future, for something so worthless. Two million dollars for a bowl of soup? Your purity for a little bit of affection in the here and now? Your marriage? for a fling all the relationships in your life just so you can hang on to that wound the future God has promised that you have been working for and looking forward to just so that you can have the pleasure of venting your wrath and your harshness for just a moment now the tragic thing is that it seems so foolish the convicting thing is that we all do it. We all do it. If you didn't recognize yourself in one of those examples, I'm sure you can come up with one in which you do. And the question is, why? Why would we do this? We all do it. Why do we trade something so valuable, a $2 million inheritance, for something so worthless as a bowl of soup? And more importantly, how do you stop? How do you stop making those kinds of choices? Those are the questions God wants to answer for us today. So if you have a Bible, 
please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We'd love for you to borrow a Bible from the rack in front of you or underneath your seat. In those Bibles, you just turn to page 976. 976, and you'll be in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture and try to answer the question, why do you and I make choices like Esau, where we sell something so valuable to get something so worthless? And how do we stop making those choices? Hebrews 12, we're going to look at verses 14 through 29. It breaks down into three sections, and we're going to take them one at a time. First section, verses 14 through 17. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Now in this section, the story that I told you at the beginning of Esau selling his inheritance rights is retold. In the Genesis story, we are told Esau does this because he despises his birthright. The author of Hebrews goes deeper and says there's more to the story. The real problem is not that Esau despised his birthright, not that he didn't think enough of $2 million, not that he didn't have a high enough view of his inheritance. The real problem was that Esau despised God. That's why he's called godless. The problem is Esau doesn't have a high enough view of God. He's forgotten that the God who has sworn to bless his father Isaac is an extravagantly generous God. Whatever Esau is thinking about his inheritance at that moment in which he's hungry, he set his sights way too low. The God who will be providing that inheritance is beyond generous, is beyond wealthy, is beyond wonderful. And the author of Hebrews says, Esau's problem was that he despised, disdained, undervalued God. But the same is true of the young girl who sells her purity for a little bit of affection in the here and now. The real problem is not that she's despised her future marriage partner or that she has despised the idea of being a virgin. The real problem is that she has despised God. So too the husband who's willing to throw away the relationship with his wife, the respect of his children, all for a sexual fling. You see, Hebrews compares what Esau did to sexual immorality. The point is the same. Look, Esau sold his future for a bowl of soup in the present. That's what sexual immorality is. 
And the point of the author of Hebrews is both have in common a despising and undervaluing of God. The same is true for the person who allows bitterness to grow up in their heart. It's not that they're not valuing all the rest of their relationships enough. It's that they don't value God enough. Their picture of God is not big enough. Now listen, before you want to look around and throw stones at everybody else other than us, this can happen to the best of us. The story I told about the man who was faithful in ministry for many years but finally gave way in one season to venting his anger, that's Moses. I referenced that story because in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire, that's a reference to that story. Moses, for a season, forgot that God is a consuming fire and allowed himself to give way to his wrath. He dishonored God and as a result was not allowed to go with the children of Israel into the promised land. And the reason Moses writes in Deuteronomy that our God is a consuming fire, he knows what happens when you forget that truth. That's the reason why he gave way to his anger. That's the reason why he sold the opportunity to go into the promised land for a moment of wrath and harshness in the present. Why we make these choices is because we despise, devalue, disdain God. And that shows up in two ways. First is still in this section. Verse 14 Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We undervalue God. We despise God when we do, when we underappreciate his holiness. God hates sin. God cannot be around sin and not punish it. You ever had a feeling where maybe you hear a story about a child who's been treated poorly at school or by a parent or something else? Or you hear a story about somebody that you care about who was treated poorly at work or was taken advantage of? Do you know that feeling, that anger that builds up within you when you want to do something, when you want to fix it, when you want to make it right, when you want to go in and give that person a piece of your mind? That's just a little taste of how God feels about sin. That's what he thinks about it. It makes him angry. He hates it. He can't be around it and not punish it. Look, you want a very, very sobering verse? Look carefully at verse 17. Speaking of Esau, afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, after he realized, whoa, that was a really, really bad move. It was a bad mistake to sell my inheritance for a bowl of soup. Afterward, when he figured this out, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. We undervalue God because we think of him as some sort of cosmic genie whose job is to come by after us when we make whatever choices we feel like making, his job is to clean up the mess. You can do any kind of thing you want sexually. You can do anything you want with bitterness or with anger. It's God's job to come in and after you figure out you made mistakes, to simply clean up the mess. But listen to what this is saying. Esau couldn't change what he had done. 
There are some consequences for sin that are not and will not be reversed. Now listen carefully. God is merciful. Sometimes he does reverse consequences. Sometimes he does keep us from experiencing the full force of the consequences. But also listen to this. This is the word of God. And in this word of God, God is saying there are some consequences that do not get reversed. And that when you and I sit down to make choices and we think, well, whatever choice I make here, God will just forgive me. God will just take care of it. God will just clean up. Whatever mess comes, he'll fix it when I say I'm sorry. He will forgive you. He will absolutely forgive you. If you are a believer in Jesus, no matter what you do, when you confess it, you will be 100% completely forgiven, forgotten. But please listen to this verse. There will be consequences that God, who is not a cosmic genie, will not come and clean up. Moses never got to go into the promised land. Moses was sorry. Moses asked for forgiveness. Moses was forgiven. But he did not go into the promised land. We despise God when we think, I can make whatever choices I want to make, and I'll just come around later and ask for forgiveness. Please, please, God is merciful. God is merciful beyond anything we could ever imagine. But hear him speaking. Esau could not change what he had done. Do you know that feeling? I know that feeling. I know that feeling to want to go back, to wish you could go back and do it over again. We despise God when we think, whatever choices I make now, he'll clean it up in the future. A second way that we despise God is in the next section. Verses 18 through 27. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Now, in this second section, you hear that same first point again. We despise God by not accounting for his holiness. That's the point about, look, in the Old Testament, if somebody committed adultery, it deserved the death penalty. Do we really think that God has changed his standards to today? 
Do we really think that God's sexual ethics have shifted with the shifting times? Not the case. This section is reaffirming what I just told you. Don't underestimate God's holiness. But it's also giving us a second thing in which we despise God, in which we undervalue God. And that is to underappreciate his blessings, to underappreciate his love. The author of Hebrews is saying, look, our situation is a lot better than the one in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, all they got was for sin, death. We've got a God who has sent a Savior to rescue us, who gave us His Son, Jesus Christ, so that no matter what sin we've committed, we don't have to experience death for it. We've been given the opportunity not to come to a mountain where God is in distance and smoke and in fire and a loud voice scaring everybody to death. We get to come to the heavenly Jerusalem, heaven come down to earth where we get to experience the God. We can be near to Him and from that God receive joy and peace and hope and love. We've been given by this God an eternal kingdom, an eternal kingdom that cannot be undone. The idea is, is we not only undervalue God's holiness, we undervalue his ability to bless us. That this God loves us so completely, so deeply, that he gave his own son to win us to himself, and that through that same son will freely give us all things. You see, if Esau had understood just how great the promise of blessing to Isaac was, he never would have sold that inheritance for a bowl of soup. You see, he didn't understand there was no going back. But he also didn't understand just how great a thing he was giving up. That's why we make those kind of choices. The reason we're willing to trade our virginity for a little bit of affection in the here and now. The reason we're willing to throw away a marriage for a sexual fling. The reason we're willing to contaminate all other relationships in our life so we can hold on to a, a root of bitterness. The reason we allow ourselves to vent our wrath, or our anger for just a season and give up a future that God has for us is because we're despising God. We're undervaluing him. We haven't considered just how holy he is and just how loving he is, how much he blesses us. So that leads to the most important question. How do you stop? How do you not do that anymore? That's the last section. Verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now again, the imagery of fire, same point. When you think about fire, one of the things you should think is, don't play with fire. You will get hurt. Don't play with God. If you engage with sin, you will get hurt. But don't miss the other side of our God is a consuming fire. Fire provides light, it provides heat, it provides energy, it provides power, it provides purification, it provides per, uh, uh, protection. Think where we would be in life without fire. Think where we would be without that. The idea is with heat and energy and power. The point is, yes, God is dangerous if you mess around with sin in his presence. But think about all the blessings that come from God as well. To turn your back on God who is heat and life and light 
is to turn your back on all those things. How do you not do that? Verse 28, be thankful. What's the opposite of despising God? It's being grateful for God. What's the opposite of undervaluing God? It's going through and realizing all the different ways that God has blessed you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do an assignment together. I need you to take out a piece of paper. It can be the back of your notes. It can be whatever. You can use the offering envelopes. Whatever you want, get a piece of paper and get a pencil. You're going to want paper and a pencil because if you don't have one, you're just going to awkwardly stare at me while we do this, and I'm going to awkwardly stare at you, and it's not going to be comfortable for any of us. So get some paper. There should be pencils in the rack in front of you, little offering pencils, or we stuck some other pencils in there. If you've got a pen or you can loan a pen, get something to write with. And what we're going to do for uh, the next 10, 15 minutes or so is we're going to put this text into practice. We are going to be thankful together. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through a series of questions that I'd like you to think about. And as you think about your answers to these questions, you're not going to have time to write an entire paragraph or sentence after sentence after sentence. What I want you to do is write a word that comes to mind. Like if I ask you to think about a time in which God blessed you and you think car because God provided you. Write down car. Something to signify that event or that story in your life. And that's what I want you to do. That is, as I go through these questions, we're just going to quietly give you the opportunity to write down a word, a phrase, a sentence, a person's name that calls to mind a way in which God has blessed you. All right, are you ready? Question one, I want you to think back to the beginnings of your journey of faith. How did God come and find you? Did he give you Christian parents? Did he have a friend who was praying for you? Did you have a church that was faithful that God used to, to bring you to faith? Think back to how you started your journey of faith. And what were the, some of the things God did to come rescue you and come get you? Listen, this is for all ages to do. If you can't write, draw a picture. So anything you can draw that you're thankful to God for, great. But how did God come find you to bring you salvation? Secondly, where would you be if you hadn't become a Christian? I mean, we all have struggles currently, but where would we be without Christ? What would you be addicted to? What might your relationships in life look like? What might be your life situation if God hadn't come in and rescued you? And for all of the struggles you and I have, what if we didn't have the Holy Spirit helping us through those? Would you be in prison? Would you be destitute? Would you be an addict? Where would you be? 
What are some things that God has forgiven you for since you became a Christian? As Christians, we still stumble in all sorts of ways. What are some things that God has been just incredibly kind and gracious to come in and forgive you for after you began walking with him? Who has God provided in your life that's a role model or a mentor or someone that you spiritually have looked up to, an older man or an older woman in the faith who is influential in your Christian journey? You heard Darren and Jill talk about it in the video about youth sponsors who came along and helped them not make bad choices. Who's God put in your life? What names come to mind when you think about those who've helped you on your journey as mentors or friends? What are some current blessings in your life? And here I'm thinking about family or friends, financial blessings. Uh, did God help you get something repaired in your house? Kind of more tangible kinds of things. Uh, did, he, did he show up and provide uh, money to pay for a tax bill or something? Some way that God recently or something in the past where he just significantly poured out his blessing in such a way in your life. Who are others that you have seen God come in and rescue and save? So I'm thinking not so much about your salvation, but somebody you love. You know, it always, it always grips me to the heart to think that Jesus died for my kids. Are there others that you've been praying for to come to faith or somebody else whose life was just a train wreck and you saw God come in and rescue them? Perhaps you've seen incredible changes in your spouse or a friend and you're so thankful to God that they brought salvation to that person. How has God been with you in suffering? 
maybe something currently difficult you're going through, something significant you've been through in the past. Did he show up with incredible peace that passes understanding? Did he bring alongside friends? Was there some way that he walked with you through the darkest times and was a friend to you? Is there a particular situation that comes to mind when you think about God being with you in the midst of suffering? Has God healed you? Has God healed someone that you love? Is there someone that you've been praying for that God showed up and did something that only God could do to bring healing, a recovery in their life? Have you experienced the discipline of God in your life? As you look back at the time, it was painful, but now you're so thankful that God didn't let you go into sin, but disciplined you. Or perhaps uh, you can think of a time where he, in his mercy, did keep you from experiencing the full consequences of sin. How has God blessed you through the community of faith? Have you found friendships in faith? Have there been people that have taught you or mentored you or helped you? Have there been resources that God has provided? Have there been ministry opportunities that you probably never would have had if it wasn't for the community of faith encouraging you on the, on the, on the journey? Has God made this church or another church a huge blessing in your life that you just wouldn't have made it without God's people coming alongside of you? What are some specific things that God has answered prayer for recently or perhaps really stick out in your memory? That when you look back, that was something I prayed earnestly for and God showed up and answered that. What are some things to come to mind when you think about answered prayer? And then finally, what do you most, and it could be a number of things, uh, looking forward to in the kingdom that God has promised to those who follow him in faith? 
Is there a loved one that is where, there waiting for you, that God is keeping safe so that you can be reunited again? Is the fact that in heaven there will be no pain, there will be no sin, there will be no suffering? Are you looking forward to physical healing, resurrection, emotional healing? Are you looking forward to uh, scars and wounds being gone, your sins being totally and completely forgiven? When you think about heaven and what's waiting for you and who's waiting for you, what things come to mind that you're grateful to God that he has made that provision for eternal life? Okay, take a look at your list. If your list is short, shorter than perhaps you expected it to be, is that perhaps because you are currently in the midst of selling valuable blessings for bowls of soup in the present? Are there things God brought you here this morning to say your list could be a lot longer, but you've been trading me for sexual immorality or for bitterness or for anger or for pride or for whatever it may be. Perhaps your list is long. Would you trade that list for a bowl of soup? Would you trade that list for a fling outside your marriage? Would you trade that list for sex before marriage? Would you trade that list for the right to be able to hold on to that woundedness and not have to forgive somebody? Would you trade that list for the right to be angry or to indulge in insecurity or pride or whatever? Would you trade that list for a bowl of soup? That God who did those things, I mean, look, we've only been at this for about 15 minutes. You spend an hour doing this, you spend a day doing this, you spend a week doing this, that list is going to grow and grow. I had to do this last night because I couldn't do it, I couldn't write it down in the middle of the service. When I went last night, it just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And as one story reminded you, as another story. And the point is, God's not even gotten started yet. The blessings that he has, what's coming in the future, that unshakable kingdom. The point is, is as we allow ourselves to be grateful, suddenly God becomes valuable. And instead of forgetting about his holiness and forgetting about his love, we have tangible evidence in front of us that God loves you, that God is the source of all blessings. Don't turn away from him. Don't walk away from him. Where else are you going to get stuff to put on that list? Did you make those things on your list happen? I didn't make the things on my list happen. Who did these things? God did them. And the point of Hebrews is, is, look, when you choose to be thankful, when you choose to be grateful, it protects you against despising God. And when we undervalue God, we make choices that are as foolish as selling our inheritance for a bowl of soup. But when we embrace God, when we remember God, when we're grateful to God, that keeps our eyes on him. And so we want to celebrate his goodness and be thankful to him.